Well, good evening, everyone. You've joined us for the second in our series uh, looking at key Reformation figures. Um, last week, we began to look uh, with Martin Luther. Uh, we're, we're celebrating the kind of 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation with Luther nailing those 95 theses uh, to possibly to the door of a cathedral in Wittenberg. And tonight, we're looking at Ulrich Zwingli. Well, as Frank said this morning, perhaps the key question is, who is Ulrich Zwingli? I have to admit, when Frank spoke to me about this series, he, he kindly asked me uh, who I might like to uh, speak about. And I actually said I'd be interested to have a go at Zwingli because I didn't know anything about him. And I thought it'd be good to try and find out. Uh, you maybe heard the name, but probably like me uh, a few months ago, you really couldn't have said very much more than that. So I'm going to take about 10 minutes now to introduce you to Zwingli. Um, but I really want us to be able to hear from him in his own words. So later on, we're going to spend... Uh, uh, about 20 minutes or so, reading from one of his sermons. Uh, so he's essentially going to be our speaker tonight, but I'm going to take 10 minutes now to introduce you to him. I have to say I've really enjoyed getting to know him. Uh, he's actually become, I think, a bit of a hero uh, for me as I've uh, found out more about him. And I'm convinced that he deserves far more attention than he's usually given. He's normally sort of overshadowed, I think, in our thinking uh, by Luther and Calvin. And Calvin, for many of us, we probably think, oh, he's our guy. You know, he's the kind of the great uh, starter of the Reformation or Reformed tradition. And then you think of Luther and you think, well, he was right there at the start. You can't really beat that. And Zwingli sort of, well, not that, not that important. But actually, uh, Zwingli was as much the beginner, if not more so, the, the founder of the Reformed tradition, the kind of tradition that has affected all of us here in the British Isles far more than Luther did. Uh, so Zwingli is really important for that. And he was right there at the beginning, right alongside Luther. So I think Zwingli is a really important figure. Um, he was uh, best known for uh, the Reformation of Zurich. He had a 12-year ministry in Zurich, uh, which totally transformed that city. Uh, tragically, his ministry was cut short by his death uh, in battle. That is reported to be uh, his helmet that he was wearing when he died in the Battle of Naples. Uh, in October 1537, I think. So I'm going to try and just highlight two things as we go through uh, to get our thinking going. Just two things as well uh, as we look at his life uh, that we can learn from today. So Zwingli, he was born on the 1st of January 1484. He grew up in a little village in the Glaurus region of Switzerland. Uh, that's a picture of it in kind of Victorian times, I think, so it looks quite romantic. It was actually a pretty wild and woolly part of the world. Switzerland was pretty uncivilized at this time, and he obviously lived in a, quite a mountainous region. So quite a rugged background. His father was a farmer. Uh, but Zwingli was sent to local schools, and he was good enough at Latin that he was actually able to be sent away to study at university in Switzerland and in Italy. And he went to university at a time when a new intellectual current was sweeping through European universities. Uh, the atmosphere had become quite stale in, in universities at the time. And this new movement was called humanism. And humanism was all about kind of basically ignoring a lot of the, the debates that were going on uh, about kind of fine points of doctrine that had been kind of going on for centuries and centuries. They sort of ignored all that and said, we're going to go right back to the sources. We're going to go back to the, to the scriptures and to the early church fathers. Uh, Zwingli 
uh, was uh, ordained in 1506, and he spent his first 12 years uh, serving in two rural parishes, a bit like this sort of thing. And that gave him lots of time to study. And it looks like at university he'd really picked up this humanist bug, uh, because he, he taught himself to read Greek and Hebrew, and he started reading the works of Origen and Augustine. And when uh, the, the New Testament came out in Greek, um, published by the greatest humanist scholar, Erasmus, uh, he bought one straight away, there it is, and started to read the New Testament in Greek. And it's really hard for us to um, uh, overstate how important this was. If you, if you could imagine that all of the scholars uh, in our universities today could only study the Bible in a fairly ropey uh, English translation, and then suddenly somebody publishes the Bible in the original Greek. You can imagine how big uh, a shock that would be to everyone's uh, systems. And this is exactly what was happening in 1516 when Erasmus published the Greek New Testament. Uh, and so uh, Zwingli was right on the crest of this wave. He was, he was studying the New Testament in Greek. And all this, it's important to remember, was happening before Luther ever published those 95 theses. That happened in 1517. Now, we don't know exactly what impact Zwingli's studies were having on him, but we do know that his preaching started to change. He started to get attention, and on the 1st of January, 1519, his 34th birthday, Zwingli was called to be the regular preacher at the Great Minster, which was Zurich's largest church. When Zwingli began his ministry, he announced that he wasn't going to follow the normal lectionary readings. Instead, he was going to preach consecutively through books of the Bible. And so the next day, he, he began. He preached through the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. And you might think if you were going to convince people of the value of expository preaching, you might not start with Matthew chapter 1, but that's what Zwingli did. And he just kept going through Matthew's gospel. When he finished, he turned to Acts. Then he preached through 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Peter, Galatians, Hebrews, Luke's gospel, and so on through the rest of the New Testament, and then he turned to the Old Testament. And this had a real impact on Zurich. Uh, by the end of the year, Zurich, um, Zwingli wrote this in a letter to a friend. In Zurich, there are already more than 2,000 more or less enlightened people who have up to now drunk spiritual milk and can soon digest solid food. Now, if you think uh, that the total population of Zurich was 4,500 at this time. That's pretty good going, isn't it? And I think this, this quotation is really interesting because it, it shows just how much of a, an agenda, you could say, Zwingli had when he arrived in Zurich to begin his ministry. He wasn't sort of just discovering it on the hoof, I don't think. He was, had a plan. By the end of the year, 1519, he's sort of saying, oh, yes, they've got to this point, and soon they're going to be able to get to this point. So just um, a year or so after Luther had posted his 95 Theses, Zwingli was already doing his Reformation in Zurich. And that tells us that you can really take Luther and Zwingli as kind of parallel uh, phenomena. They were happening almost independently of each other. Zwingli definitely read Luther and, and liked what he was writing, but most of what Zwingli was doing had already been formed in those years of study before he ever came to Zurich. And I found that very encouraging. Because it means that the Reformation wasn't a human movement. It wasn't just about one inspirational individual like Luther. This was about uh, 
a whole movement of people going back to the Bible, reading it for themselves again, and rediscovering the gospel. And so here's the first thing I want us to notice about Zwingli's ministry and what we can learn from him. God reformed Zurich through biblical preaching. And this emphasis on biblical preaching was really the bedrock of Zwingli's ministry. Uh, In September 1522, he preached a famous sermon called On the Clarity and Certainty of the Word of God. In it, he said that the Word of God is certain and cannot fail us. It's clear and does not let us wander in darkness. It teaches itself, explains itself, and brings the light of full salvation and grace to the human soul. So God reformed Zurich through biblical preaching. But the talk did have to turn into action. And in Lent 1522, Zwingli gathered for a a supper party, uh, and on the menu were sausages, typically Swiss, you might think. Uh, But this was Lent, and sausages were strictly prohibited by the fasting regulations. Well, shrewdly, Zwingli didn't actually eat the sausages himself. But a few weeks later, he defended those who did from his pulpit in the Great Minster. To sum up uh, briefly, he says, if you want to fast, do so. If you do not want to eat meat, don't eat it. But allow Christians a free choice. Well, this was revolutionary talk. Uh, And to understand what's going on, we need to know that Zurich was really a proud, quite an independently-minded city, quite wealthy. But the closest bishop was 20 miles away. Uh, And Zurich really operated pretty independently of the bishop. And Zwingli took advantage of this. He knew that there was going to be a confrontation between uh, the gospel that he was preaching and the church authorities. And he wanted the city council's support for what he was doing. He wanted them to buy in to his Reformation program. But he knew that he could only do that by sort of forcing the city council into doing it, by by kind of allowing some of the popularity of his message to start changing the kind of uh, fixed agenda. And so he began a number of provocative actions, beginning with this sausage party uh, that tried to sort of bounce the the, the city leadership into Reformation. Uh, Later that summer, he interrupted a sermon uh, on Mary by a visiting preacher by shouting, that's where you're wrong, brother! Well, these episodes inevitably led to a number of hearings um, in the city council, uh, which met in the uh, Rat House. Uh, The most famous one took place in January 1523, so four years now into Zwingli's ministry. Uh, Several hundred people were gathered in the city hall that day. The bishop was invited, but only as an advisor. In the chair was the mayor, Marx Royst. And in the middle of the city hall, for everyone to see, was a copy of the Bible in several different translations. And the mayor uh, stipulated that only the, this was the only authority to be used in the debate. Zwingli prepared 67 theses for the debate, summarizing his teaching. And the question was asked whether anyone objected to Zwingli's teaching. Well, nobody did. But the bishop's representative did question whether a city council was really the best body to determine what the teaching of the church should be. Surely it was better to to send it off to the experts in the university. And Zwingli's response really captures what the Reformation in Zurich was all about. He declared that here in this room is without a doubt a Christian assembly. 
Zwingli believed that God's word was so clear that anybody enlightened by the Holy Spirit would be able to recognize true Christian teaching when they heard it. It didn't need to be sent off uh, to any council of pope or bishop or prelates or big moguls. And that's a quote from the translation I have. Uh, And nobody seems to have challenged this. The council agreed to allow Zwingli to continue to preach as he saw fit. And they said, all other preachers in Zurich should preach nothing but what can be proved by the Holy Gospel and the pure Holy Scriptures. Now, this is really significant because Zwingli had persuaded the Council of Zurich to commit the city to one of the most famous uh, Reformation principles. We now call it sola scriptura, the idea that the Bible alone is the final judge of our doctrine. And these city councillors signed off on that. They said, yeah, we want nothing preached in our city except that can be proved by the Bible. So here's the second thing we can learn from Zwingli. God reformed Zurich through prudent politicking. It's worth saying that Zwingli's enthusiasm for working with the council did come with a cost. Uh, The politicians weren't willing to move just as quickly as Zwingli and many of his supporters uh, wanted. There were splits that began in, in Zurich that continue to this day. But Zwingli was willing to allow the government the freedom to work out just how they should implement God's word. He was willing to be patient with them as they uh, worked through that. And so I think Zwingli's helpful because he reminds us that although the Reformation was a work of God, it didn't sort of just fall out of the sky. Um, The story's often told about how Luther was sort of uh, struggling with his guilty conscience. And one day he opened his Bible and he he understood finally uh, what God's grace was all about. And, and so the, for Luther, the Reformation was all about how can I, as an individual, get right with God? And Zwingli thought that was massively important too. But Zwingli had, I would say, a bit of a broader vision. He thought that uh, it was all about bringing everything in society into line with God's word. He wanted to see the gospel transform an entire city. And so you could say Zwingli was both a Bible man and a political man. His enormous confidence in the Bible gave him the confidence that in the end, the politicians would do the right thing if they were Christian people. Well, uh, that's it for an introduction. Um, In our sermon, we're going to hear a little bit of how Zwingli maybe related some of these two things, how his passion for the Bible and for the gospel Uh, linked up with the kind of the more mucky everyday realities of of life in a broken world and with politics and that kind of thing. So I think we're going to have a reading now from Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 5. The sermon that we're going to hear, come come up, yeah. Um, The sermon that we're going to hear isn't a sort of a typical Zwingli sermon in that he's kind of going through a Bible passage. It's more of a sermon where he draws together lots of doctrines, but it uh, does seem to be built on the Sermon on the Mount. So let's have the first reading from that. Okay, the first reading tonight is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, and it's found on page 968, the Beatitudes. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We will continue our Bible reading from Matthew chapter 5, reading from verse 17 to 20, and then from uh, 43 to the end of the chapter. But reading at Matthew 5, verse 17, let us hear God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we go on to then verse 43. You have heard it, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteousness and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not even the tax, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Amen. Okay, so I said um, I'm going to allow Zwingli to be our main speaker tonight. Uh, So I'm going to read an extract from one of his sermons. Uh, As I say, this isn't a sort of typical sermon for Zwingli. This was one that he he, um, gave to address a particular situation, answering kind of particular questions. So it's not kind of working through a Bible passage as it seems like he normally did. 
Uh, it's also a very long sermon. I think it would take me about an hour and a half, if not more, to read. So I am going to give you extracts. I think he kind of bulked it out a bit for publication. I don't know how long it would have taken uh, normally. Uh, you do need to brace yourselves, though. Uh, he kind of starts at kind of full pace and doesn't sort of let up. Um, um, so, so try and listen out, maybe, for what you kind of might expect somebody like him to say from what you know about reformers generally. And maybe listen out for things that you, you didn't really expect him to say, because that might be interesting things to think about. The title of the sermon is Of Divine and Human Righteousness and How They Relate to Each Other. Uh, I think the context that he's speaking into was a kind of a two-tier medieval system uh, where basically ordinary folk, it was felt like they could never really do the sorts of things that, that we read about in, in the reading uh, from, from the Sermon on the Mount. That it was just too hard for them. So they kind of had a lower level of righteousness. But then the people like the priests and the monks because they were committed to the spiritual life, they really could try and do some of these. And so they kind of operated on a much higher level than everyone else. And that worked its way in, into politics as well. So the, the Pope, because he was a spiritual figure, he was sort of in charge of all the princes and, and, uh, and other um, leaders because they were just sort of ordinary folk at the end of the day. So that's, I think, what um, Zwingli is wanting to uh, speak about. Uh, we, let's begin uh, with a, a prayer that Zwingli prayed pretty much every day as we uh, read these words. So let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and most merciful God, whose word is a lantern to our feet and a light to our path, open and enlighten our hearts that we may understand your holy word in its purity and holiness and do those things that we have rightly understood so that we may in no way offend your majesty, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In order that it might become apparent how divine righteousness and our miserable human righteousness relate to one another, I shall speak, first of all, of divine righteousness. Now, God is not righteous simply because he gives to everyone his own, as people have tended to define righteousness. For should we measure him by this yardstick, we might conclude that we are something apart from him. What, after all, is ours? Nothing. Everything we have and are is his. And he is not obligated to give us what is ours, for nothing is ours. Whatever he gives is all his. But he is righteous in a different manner or else he would not give anything to anyone, for he doesn't owe anyone anything. He is righteous in that he is the wholesome fount of all innocence, goodness, righteousness, and of everything good, for he is himself essentially righteousness, goodness, and every good itself, so that nothing is godly, righteous, or good except what comes from him. Just as he's not merely truthful, but truth itself, John 14, verse 6, so also he's not merely righteous, but wholesome righteousness itself, which is so pure and essentially undefiled that in it there is no mingling with any kind of uncleanness or temptation. For whatever is mingled cannot be eternal, but God is the eternal good. Therefore, he who is righteous must be unmingled and freed from any temptation and selfish desire. 
Nevertheless, God demands that we be like him if we desire to dwell with him. For just as a householder does not tolerate any servant in his employ who is not like him in his habits, so God tolerates even less anyone who in his kingdom who is not formed in accordance with his beauty and innocence and who is not as pure as when he created the first being. Christ illustrates this for us in the person who was invited to the marriage feast, Matthew 22. Since he did not wear a wedding garment, he was therefore thrown out. And yet the Lord who had bid people to be called in uh, were the poor, the sick, the blind, and the lame, Luke 14, 21. They had to be clean, however, in the way that God demands it. For God is an eternally consuming fire with whom no one can dwell who has something clinging to him which the fire cannot tame or which resists it. Rather, whatever seeks to dwell with him must be holy and godly, pure and undefiled, just as he is. Isaiah points to this in chapter 33. Who among you is able to dwell with the consuming fire? Or who among you is able to dwell in eternal heat? Answer, whoever walks in righteousness, or who is righteous, whoever speaks the truth, whoever disdains greed which harms the community, and who keeps his hands off any gifts and bribes, whoever closes his eyes in order to not see evil, such a one shall dwell in the heights. His elevation shall surpass the fortified rocks. He shall receive food, or bread. His water streams are pure and clear. They shall see the king in his splendor, and their eyes shall see the land from afar off. Isaiah seeks to show by these words how those have to be who desire to dwell with God. And the sum is that they must be innocent in every way. Christ has summed it up for us in a few words in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. But what is a pure heart, or which of them is pure? On earth there is none. For what is there that is not selfish, impressed by itself, or in some way tainted, something that God cannot tolerate at all? Well, in the same breath, we must point here to the gospel. We heard expressly that no one may come to God unless he is pious, pure, righteous, and innocent as God requires. All humans are bound to fall short of this righteousness. For who is so holy that his heart is without temptation and desire? Thus, no one is able to dwell with God, for whoever desires to dwell with him must be spotless. God saw this, our misery and impotence, and took pity, finding means by which his righteousness might be appeased on our behalf so that we might dwell with him. He therefore allowed his son to become human through the pure handmaiden Mary, conceived without any sin through the Holy Spirit, so that his heart was without any sinful temptation since it was not conceived in sin as we are, so that we might be altogether pure. Now, since he who is innocent suffered death for us guilty sinners, he paid off for us the beautiful righteousness of God, 
which otherwise no human being is able to satisfy. Thus he earned for us the right to come to God by virtue of his free grace and gift. Whoever hears this and believes in it without doubt shall be saved. This is the gospel. Yet that which God demands still remains, namely that we are duty-bound at all times to live as pure, clean, unspotted and right as God wants it. For Christ says, Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yet indeed, we are never thus. For it is impossible, as long as we live, to be that pure. Therefore, we must at all times come to God through the one righteous, innocent Jesus Christ. For he alone is the advocate and recompense for our sin to eternity. 1 John chapter 2. So this, in brief, is the relationship of the gospel to our guilt and impotence. Here, then, follows a word on divine righteousness, which alone may be properly called righteousness. Divine righteousness is as pure and beautiful in itself as it challenges us to be. Ten points. I'm going to give you several of them. Number one, divine righteousness bids us forgive, just as we desire God to forgive us. And divine righteousness achieves this so richly that it doesn't forgive as it desires to be forgiven, for there's nothing that has to be forgiven divine righteousness. Rather, if we but require its grace, it forgives beyond all measure and without any merit on our part. Yes, even though we should be in disfavour and worthy of God's righteous wrath, he forgives us. Romans 5, 6 to 11. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Number two, God bids us not only not to kill, but even not to become angry, Matthew 5, 22. He too does not get angry. And wherever anger is attributed to him in scripture, it is none other but deserved wrath. Number three, God bids us not to engage in lawsuits and quarrels. Rather, if the coat should be taken from us, we are asked to leave the overcoat as well, Matthew 5 verse 40, which he did. He allowed his enemies to take him to court without demanding any justice and to kill him, as the prophet prophesied, Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was led to his death like a sheep and did not open his mouth. Number four, not only does God bid us not to commit adultery, but that we should not even desire a married person, Matthew 5, 28. He keeps that, for he is without any temptation whatever. Indeed, the humanity of Jesus is without any sinful temptation. And he bids us leave father and mother rather than our marriage partner, and not to break asunder what God has joined together. Number five, God forbids any swearing and bids us be so dependable that our yes is yes and our no, no, without any oath at all, Matthew 5, 37. He too is like that. For heaven and earth shall sooner pass away than that any of his words remain unfulfilled. We experience that daily. 
skipping to number seven. God bids us to do good not only to our friends and blameless persons, but also to enemies. Matthew 5, 44. I say unto you, you ought to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who persecute and derile you. He himself does so also. He causes his son to shine on the just and unjust and the rain to fall on the pious and impious. Matthew 5, 45. He provides fruit and food to unbelievers and enemies as much as believers. And then finally, number 10. God is not content when we do no harm to the neighbor or come to his aid only after we've secured our own position. Rather, he wills that we love the neighbor as much as ourselves. He himself acted towards us in this manner. He gave himself for us and has taken us unto himself as his friends, kinsfolk and heirs. So you see the high standard uh, that we are called to as Christians. Well, I suppose the, the question is, how does that work in practice? Let's carry on with Zwingli. Now, since there are still many godless people who are not only afflict, uh, afflicted by the common imperfection of not loving God above all else, but who also don't believe that there is a God who punishes everything that's good and evil, as a result, they fall into horrendous vices. If God were not there ahead of their evil designs, they would destroy everyone with their evil and impiety. Since they do not fear God, they would take from everyone what belongs to him. And if uh, they should be displeased, they would simply kill them. God foresaw that and provided laws by which a godless person may be inhibited and subdued. Though he does not care much for God, he must nevertheless leave people in peace and cannot intimidate anyone. And here... Poor, weak, human righteousness becomes apparent. Laws have been given for the sake of wicked people, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 9. The law has not been given for the righteous, but for those who lead sinful lives. Therefore, we distinguish two types of law, just as there, as there are two types of righteousness, divine and human. One type of law looks only to the inward person, such as how one is to love God and neighbor. These laws no one is able to fulfill, just as there's no one who's righteous except for the one God and the one who by grace has been made righteous through faith. The other type of law looks only to the outward person. On their account, somebody might be outwardly good and righteous while inwardly nonetheless impious and condemned in God's sight. To take an example, you shall not steal. That commandment addresses itself to the outward life and goodness. You shall not cover another's property. The 10th commandment is directed to the inward divine righteousness. But both refer to the same thing, thievery. Now, if a person doesn't steal, he's considered to be in human righteousness, righteous. But in God's sight, uh, he may well still be wanting to steal things, and in God's sight, he is unjust. He may well have a greater desire and temptation for other people's possessions than the one who's actually stolen. But a thief is hanged because he's an exposed thief. But the knave, who is actually greedier for temple goods, is reputed to be righteous simply because he didn't follow through indeed. Yet in God's sight, he is not righteous. Well, this is how you can discern the boundaries between divine and human, human righteousness. 
measured by divine righteousness, we are all knaves. Since our iniquity is known to God alone, the one God also judges the one or grants the other to us through his grace, if we believe knowingly that he died and made payment for us out of his compassion. And measured by human righteousness, we are often found to be righteous, though we are truly knaves in God's sight. But the one who is found by human righteousness to be not only a knave in God's sight, but a known sinner publicly, is turned over to the one who judges transgressors, namely the magistrate or judge. Okay, I'm now going to skip over quite a bit. We're going to skip over, he kind of draws a contrast between this divine righteousness and he kind of gives examples of human righteousness that match each of those 10 points that we looked at there. And then he gives another 10 points, obviously a fan of the old 10-point sermon, uh, Zwingli. Uh, he gives another 10 points on, um, on, on the kind of responsibilities uh, of, the, of the civil government from Romans chapter 13. So we'll come now to, to his conclusion. To sum up, God's word ought to govern all people. It ought to be prescribed, proclaimed, and faithfully interpreted and made known to them for we are obliged to follow it. Our own impotence is aided by the singular grace through, of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. The more we recognize our own guilt and impotence, the more we find the beauty and omnipotence of God, and we discover more and more the love and confidence of his grace, which makes us good and God-fearing as nothing else can. In case there are some who do not listen to or live by the word of God, because they're either godless or unbelieving, God has provided for us the lowest possible commandment. Not that in living by thereby we should be considered godly, but rather that human society might be preserved and protected, and that guardians be set up who see to it earnestly that the last shred of poor human righteousness be not torn away also. These guardians are the properly ordained magistrate, which is none other than the one that carries the sword." In other words, the one we call secular authority, whose office it is to conduct everything in keeping with the divine will. And if that is not possible for us, to guide us by the divine commandment. Therefore, everything that is neither to be found in God's word and commandment, nor given in human righteousness, should be set aside by them and held to be false, unlawful and unjust, even by human righteousness." I will once again now and briefly restate this opinion and relate divine and human righteousness to each other. One, God is the highest, most perfect good. Two, he's willing to reveal himself to all creatures and to be of aid to them without any return or retribution. Three, he's not selfish or subject to affectation. And he requires of us to be like that too. For he says... You are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we intend to come into his presence, we must therefore, one, be perfect, i.e. pure, upright, beautiful, and without any infirmity. Two, we must not think that we are our own masters, but know ourselves to be gods. And if we are gods, then we are our neighbors also. And three, we cannot in any way be selfish or afflicted, either by greed, desire, ambition, or lust. We ought to seek above all else the kingdom of God and its righteousness, which means we must become righteous as he is righteous. This, of course, is impossible for us. Therefore, he assures us by his grace through his son, whom he has given up for us unto death. 
That is the gospel. But in order that these infirmities might not become so monstrous that we go totally wild and become more evil than irrational beasts, God has provided for us two things which are to direct and govern us. His word and the magistrate who keeps our infirmities in check through punishment. So two things, the word and and the magistrate. One, through the word of God, we learn how good or godly we ought to be. In it, we find salvation through grace. No one is master over this word, for it is set over all people. For no one who is born in sin is so righteous or without guilt that he's capable of doing justice to this word. Nor is there anyone who does not lack the grace which is assured us in that word. But two, in order that no violence grow out of our selfishness, we've been given the magistrate to control the evildoer so that he may not rob another because of his selfish desire. And then three, so that we may not lose all shame, like dogs, this same magistrate is to punish us, for he has laws for this purpose. Beyond this, the magistrate is not to refer to or take refuge in the word of God for anything else, for it can only punish outward misdeeds, but cannot make one either good or bad inwardly. God alone is able to do that in human hearts. It follows that the magistrate should only prevent apparent, open misdeeds by decree and punishment. It shouldn't seek to prohibit whatever is right or not forbidden or is permitted by God, for they cannot turn into sin what is no sin. Instead, they ought to promote what contributes to fear of God and Christian piety. For in short, the word of God cannot be captured nor tied down. But if all of us together endeavour to follow the word of God, God will thereafter govern. He will bring about that everything follows in its proper way. To him be praise and honour in all eternity. Amen. Well, I hope that gave you a little bit of a flavour of some of the things that Zwingli thought was important for people who were beginning to learn about the gospel in Zurich. Our Father God, we thank you for the life and witness of your servant, Ulrich Spingley. We thank you for the way he called people back to your word with such confidence and with such power. And Father, having heard your word this evening, we want to echo his prayer that as we have heard it in its purity and holiness, we pray that we might do the things that we've rightly understood so that we may in no way offend your majesty through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit might be with us all forevermore. Amen.